Are you from, where are you from originally? Uh, originally I'm from New Jersey, USA. I was born in Southern New Jersey and I lived there almost my whole life. Three years, four years ago I moved to Delaware, across the river. Oh. So, very adventurous. I moved a whole 30 miles away from wow. my house. So when you, <laughs> when you worked for Commodore, yeah. you, were, you were living in, in New Jersey? Yeah, yeah I, was, I actually had a house that was like right near the bridge, because South Jersey where I lived was kind of like an island, like you couldn't go anywhere, you couldn't leave New Jersey except by a couple bridges or possibly the ferry if you went all the way to the end. So yeah, we lived really close, we lived within like five miles of the bridge to Pennsylvania, and my wife worked and still works in Jersey, so we couldn't, move, we couldn't, we didn't have too much flexibility. Plus. For some reason, I just never wanted to live in a landlocked state. Mm. I always want to be somewhere near the water. <laughs> so, how, how did you uh, how did you get hired at Commodore? So, I, right out of college, I was working at General Electric. Right out of college, it was it was one of those things where they, you know, you had on on campus interviews, and um, that was the offer I got. And um, if it had been a few months later, I might have wound up working for Prime Computer near Boston. But they gave me an offer. They're, they also went out of business, so <laughs> wouldn't have helped. Um, but uh, General Electric promised me space shuttle, and I'm like, oh yeah, I want to build rockets. That's cool. Um, when I got there, I wasn't actually in. I hadn't gotten a security clearance yet, but they were clearly working on nuclear missiles, and I said, no oh, thanks. Um, so uh, it took me a little while to get up the, the courage to leave because you're not really supposed to just work for a, a company for a few months right out of college, but I did anyway. Um, so I had sent, I looked through pre-internet, looked through the local Philadelphia paper to find the one headhunter who wasn't asking for two years experience, <laughs> sent my resume out um, on a Tuesday. They called me at work on Thursday I was wearing a homemade shirt that day. I was, I was rebelling against the whole General Electric thing where all these kids from college were slowly melting into the infrastructure and starting to look like everyone else at General Electric. Um, so I went to the headhunter and I get into uh, the office and there's this John Lennon looking guy with round glasses and long hair, longer than mine. And um, it's like, you know, hi. I'm like, yeah, hey, I'm here for an interview. You too? It's like, yeah, sort of. And um, so we, uh, we started talking a little bit, and um, then they brought me in, and there was a normal suit guy who, uh, with a bad comb over, um, turned out that was, that was Joe Krizuki, who was the uh, head of engineering at the time, and um, I had an interview with him. And they brought me into another room, and there's that John Lennon-looking guy, who was Bill Hurd, <laughs> who asked me, um, about if I knew Laplace transforms, he showed me an he showed me an operational amplifier circuit with a little diode in there, and asked me what that was for. And I said that's to limit the swing so it doesn't saturate, and a few other questions. And then um, basically they said uh, you should come and visit us on Monday at the plant. And when I went to that was that was Thursday, I went, I went to the plant on Monday, and they said you're hired. Pretty easy, right? <laughs> what was your what was your experience with personal computers up to that point? Okay, so in 1977, 
my best friend Scott had gotten an inheritance and decided he wanted a personal computer. And we went to the computer store on the island of Manhattan in New York. And this computer store was, to call it a store was a bit of an exaggeration. It was a one room office, one room office in a, an office building. One end of the building had, or one end of this little room had 4K Apple IIs, the other end had Commodore PET 2001s. And so Scott bought a Commodore PET. That was the first time I touched a personal computer. I had played around a little bit with hobby computers, but the thing was before this, I taught myself basic using, hello, uh-oh. It's all right. <laughs> we have a, uh, is this on? No. Yes, hello? Hello, testing, one, two. Oh, ah, there we go, okay. Yeah, actually, this, this sounds a little bit better. Um, so, so yeah, um, I, uh, I taught myself basic. My dad was bringing, my dad had brought home, foolishly, when I was like 12 years old, had brought home a, an HP calculator that was the size of a, like a large desktop computer. Um, it used core memory, it had little magnetic cards. And, um, well, he brought it home to work on his taxes, but when he wasn't using it, I was playing around with it. And um, in about a week, I had gotten tired of the, the NIM game and a few other things, and I started taking... This is just on my day, it's cut, cutting in and out. Anyway, um, I started taking apart the, uh, the, the programs, figuring how they worked, and after that computer went away, I'm like, I, like hello? Yeah, so I, I was like, my dad, you know, I asked him, can you, can you get me, bring home a computer again? He says, well, we have, a, we have a mainframe at the office. No one uses it on the weekend. So he started bringing home a TI Silent 700 terminal that printed on thermal paper. And every weekend, I got to work on computers until the paper ran out. <laughs> one roll of thermal paper. Not not the best ecology move there, but but I did I did teach myself basic and Fortran over the next couple of years, and so when Scott got his pet, I already knew how to program basic, um, and I had also been reading. I read Kilobot, microcomputing, I read Creative Computing, um, all the all the you know the the hobbyist magazines. I was learning a little bit about electronics, in the context of computers, and so. Um, in 79, I actually had a family inheritance when my grandfather died, and I bought a, an Exidy Saucerer, which is a computer almost no one ever heard of. Um, it was a Z80, or a Z80, since I'm not in the USA anymore. <laughs> and uh, it was, uh, it was, it had, came with 16K, but it had sockets for another 16K. And I, I very shortly found a place that would sell me 16K for the low sum of 19.99, which was amazing because like a couple of years before you were paying about about $100 for 16K of RAM, DRAM. Um, when I got it, it had no cassette interface. Well, it had a cassette interface built into the system that was that came out the serial port. The it had a, a, a regular DB25 serial port, the old-fashioned kind, but. Every, as everyone knows, of course, the DB25 serial port actually could support two RS-232 ports. They only had one, but they also had a cassette interface. I had a little, regular, old-fashioned cassette player from Radio Shack, um, which I immediately tore apart, put in a DB25 connector, 
short-circuited over some of the analog circuitry to the point where I could get kind of a digital tape drive out of it that was control also controlled motor on and off from from the um, from the Exidy. And so I built my tape drive. I also ended up building my own monitor, sort of. Is that I, my mom had given me a TV for my birthday the previous year, uh, just a black and white TV, and it was it was a Hitachi black and white TV, and she got it mostly because a friend of hers worked at a uh, at a place that did um, RVs, and this was an RV television, and that you could all you could plug it into 110 volts, but it would also work off of 12 volts. So. It turned out this was one of the best TVs ever for modding. And I went down to the local radio, in Lincroft, New Jersey, I rode my 10 speed to Lincroft, New Jersey, and got a uh, copy of Sam's Photofax for this Hitachi television that showed me right where the, where the composite video was. And I put in a big old Frankenstein looking switch that allowed me to switch that circuit back into its normal path or switch it to a little transistor <laughs> amplifier I built. And that transistor amplifier then went to a, a, a screw on a coax jack at the end. So I could, basically what I did was I built the, I, I built my own version of the yellow RCA jack that's on every television since the 80s. You were the inventor. I I put I may I probably had one of the first TVs ever with composite video in, because uh, I tried a modulator and the, the X City actually had a higher bandwidth video than most of the early personal computers. It did 64 characters, not just it was black and white. It had programmable characters. It had a it had character graphics like the pet, but half of them were programmable. Uh, the only problem was if you use the built-in clear screen function in BASIC, it reset all the programmable characters. So one of the first things I did was write an assembly language routine that cleared the screen without doing that. <laughs> and uh, and I, um, I wrote programs for that. Um, I sold the programs to about 10% of the people who bought that computer in the US, which is like 500 people, because no one bought it. Um, and, the summer of 79, I made more money in software selling, I wrote programs and sold a couple tapes to uh, Creative Computing Magazine that had their own software business. They were selling software on tapes back then. The previous summer, I had worked at a uh, summer camp washing dishes and didn't make, you, <laughs> didn't make as much money. So I was like, yes, computer science is great. It was still you know, pocket change basically, but it was, but it was like, it was, it was a, it was a moderate, meaningful, successful thing. I kept that computer through college. When I was out of college, um, I was working on a house for my mom. My mom and her business partner owned a kennel, and they had bought this horrible, horrible house. So they spent like $25,000 to buy a house. So you can sort of imagine what kind of house you get for $25,000, not a whole lot. Um, and it needed a lot of work, and I'm good at carpentry and fixing things up and wiring things in, and I put in a water heater, and I did some wiring, and I built a wall so the bathroom didn't have just a curtain covering it. And one night, I was up at my friend Max's house in central Jersey, in the fog, stayed overnight because of the fog. I came home, and my house had been robbed, burglarized. And they took the exity. Strangely enough, they left my speakers. They took my turntable, they took my amplifier, they left the speakers, which eventually wound up in the Commodore lab. <laughs> um, and uh, I was not too happy about this. They took, my, they took my Olympus OM1 camera, but left all the lenses. 
So I eventually replaced that, but it was it was just it was very very tragic. And so I ended up uh, later that year buying a Commodore 64, and that was right before I ended up getting the job at Commodore. Now, when you started at Commodore, you were working directly under Bill, right? Yeah. So what, yeah. Were, what were some of the projects, your first projects over there? Um, well, I, I had started with Bill in the middle of the TED project, which eventually became the C16 and the, and the Plus 4. Um, neither of those were really what it was supposed to be, that the C16 was close. They started that project as Jack was afraid of the Sinclair. Sinclair came over with their Z80 machine for 100 bucks. And Jack was like, no, we cannot be undersold. We have to have a computer for 100 bucks. And obviously, we're going to make a C64 sell for 100 bucks. Um, after Jack left, so I started in the fall of 83. Jack left right after the CES show in 84 when they introduced the Plus 4, or they introduced the 264, 364. They weren't, it wasn't called the Plus 4 yet. Um, I'm pretty convinced that, um, that his sons were still working there and just basically trying to cause a little chaos by boosting this thing up to be a much bigger computer than it was supposed to be. Um, so apparently all of the, almost all the TED computers sold as the C16 in South America. <laughs> but, um, but I did, I was doing like the timing diagrams. We had, for that machine, we had a big acetate sheet with timing diagrams. And we documented every little nanosecond, which basically meant me documented every little nanosecond um, to make sure it all worked. Um, in fact, later on, when I was on the C128, I started doing that with, I, there was a spreadsheet on the VAX that allowed a spreadsheet to call other spreadsheets in. So I built spreadsheet models for each DRAM we could possibly use. Each chip, they were all pulled into this big simulation that was done in a spreadsheet that did all the timing for the C128, worst case, best case, so we would know if anything failed. And there was one parameter that in absolute worst case was minus one nanosecond. Everything else worked. <laughs> was there any sense on, on, the, on the TED team that you were in fact cannibalizing existing C64 sales as you were working on it, or did that just come in, in hindsight? We never really thought about cannibalizing the C64. The plus four stuff came so late in the project. Um, they had some ideas about selling it as an education machine with built-in, so the, the extra set of ROMs could be used for a variety of things. Uh, there was one version they had done that had a word processor built into it. There's another version that had logo built into it, which would have been good for educational. So for a little while, they were trying to figure out things that they might have done with the, with the 264 that we still called it that wouldn't have, that might maybe made it a little bit of an advantage over a C64. Um, but the problem was that, you know, this thing came out and like everybody else who tried to compete with the C64, you couldn't. Yeah. C64, C64 had already pretty much won the microcomputer business because it, all the software was for the C64. It was kind of like trying to come up with an alternative to the IBM PC. If you found a good niche, maybe you could. But once the PC was, not, not in the early days, but once the PC was out and cheap, no one really successfully competed against it because everyone could make one because it was cheap. Commodore 64, of course, only Commodore could make, but there were, you know, they were selling two million a year. And that was a lot of computers back then. <laughs> so, yeah, I, it, was, it was, I mean, we really had very little to say about how the thing was sold. 
Um, you know, you, you kind of like, and we were both, you know, we were both in our 20s. We were not like, you know, experienced computer people. Bill, Bill was a self-taught engineer. Um, if you ever had to debug something, he was the guy you wanted in the room with you. That guy, he showed me some tricks that, you know, I use to this day. Um, I had more of the formal education, so we made actually a very good team. Um, and then we brought in, uh, for the C128, we also brought in Frank Pelea, who knew the Z80. Um, and um, yeah, it's pretty much, you know. So you really have a hand in every non-C64 model. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know, after the C64, yes. I mean, obviously there's all the pet stuff and everything. And, you know, I had, you know, I had friends like my friend Fred Bowen, who currently works with my company, was, uh, was, was working on the uh, cutting ruby lift for the 6502, <laughs> you know, like really far back. So, you know, there's some of those, some of my Commodore friends were there long before I was. But, yeah, I was, after the C64, I was pretty much, at least had a fingerprint on all, on almost all the stuff that happened until later in the Amiga years when there was just a whole lot of a whole lot of work going on, and I you know I couldn't have had been involved in everything. Yeah. Well, let's let's move on to the Amiga years. Okay. Tell me about the very first time you heard about the Amiga. The very first time I heard about the Amiga was at CES 1984, that same show that we were de debuting. The um, well, actually no, it was 1985. CS 1985 was the first time. Actually, I had heard a little bit about it, but this was seeing it in person. Um, we were showing off the C128, it, and it was it was not done yet. In fact, it was funny. We were driving. Bill and I came in on the same plane. We're in a taxi driving to the hotel. There's a big old billboard up there that talks about the C128, and that was the first time either of us found out that the C128 was expandable to 512K. <laughs> that was something the marketing people decided. And they were, and they, and of course they were telling everybody. So we ended up actually having to redesign a few things to, and, and then, you know, uh, we had, we, Frank also did this, uh, the REU, the, the memory module that wasn't really expandable, but it was, it, it met the legal qualifications that they had committed themselves to. Um, and uh, while we were there, um, Bill had managed to um, talk to some of the Amiga guys, and we ended up back in one of the Amiga suite. It was me, Bill, RJ, and Dave Needle, um, and some beer, and, and we took apart the Amiga, and the Amiga 1000, and looked inside, and we... Bill and I both cracked up laughing because they had um, the original Daphne chip. It wasn't the Denise yet. The, the display chip had a tower. You know, a tower is, you guys probably know what a tower is if you don't know the name. It's when you have a circuit board that plugs into a socket. We always called those towers. So they had a tower, which basically meant that they were adding some stuff to that chip to make it work. We had a tower in the, uh, in the, in the C128. Your computer experience. In fact, that's, that tower had been, see that had been like our preoccupation for a month because the, uh, the 8563 80 column chips didn't work very well. So at Christ, between Christmas and New Year's, it was me and Ted Lundy, the head of chip development, going through a huge pile of 8563 chips trying to find some golden ones while Bill Hurd and Dave Diorio, who designed the, uh, the, the Vic chip, 
had, were building a tower to try to make it sync with the bus because it wasn't properly syncing. I actually, I was the first one to turn the chip on and try to make it work. I wrote some code for it and got it to do some displays, but what I found out was you, you kind of had to tell it everything twice. <coughs> so, <coughs> excuse me. So the guy who designed it, Kim Eckert, was from Texas. <coughs> so we started, we started calling re registers. You had to write, you had to tell a couple times. We started calling those Texas registers. I don't know if it ever made the jargon file, but it should. <coughs> anyway, Kim was Kim was on vacation in Texas while his boss and me were doing all this testing, and Bill and Dave were trying to come up with this way of of synchronizing it, which worked. The problem is it was using a phase lock loop circuit, and a phase lock loop will lock onto a frequency, but you kind of have to tune it if it isn't locked to get it to lock, and that tuning changes with temperature. So at the, on the CES show floor, um, we had all these marketing guys doing things they shouldn't be doing with C128s. We had a bunch of them out there, and we had, we had picked the, 80, the ones that had the best 80 column display to show off the 80 column display, and um, all these guys, all these marketing guys were power cycling because they didn't know there was a reset button. You didn't even have to power cycle. They were power cycling them and then they wouldn't come up because the 80 column chip wasn't responding. So I was walking around the floor of CES with a can of free spray and a little plastic tweaking tool getting C128s to go back for like the first two days before I had kind of whipped these guys. And I mean, I was just this kid, right? I was, you know, 22 years old. Whipping them into shape, saying, you know, you got to do this, you got it. Twenty-three, excuse me. Um, and eventually, that that stopped. But so we, so we, we were invited to this suite, and we were just, you know, we exchanged war stories, and that was my first introduction to both uh, Amiga, Amiga people, and yeah, they were like us. They were, they were the same, the same kind of people, and. That was a good introduction because eventually Westchester was going to start stealing away Amiga jobs. Right. <laughs> Even then, as you were looking at the sort of hardware picture of the system, did you tell it was something special and something unique? Well, then I knew it was something unique because the graphics demos, the, there wasn't, the, the whole operating system wasn't working yet, but they had all those demos that every, you know, that became famous, the Robo City and that, like nobody had seen anything like that on a, on a personal computer. Most people never seen anything like that on any computer. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was it was cool. And then in talking to them, and I was talking to Needle about DMA channels and things like that, and I'm like, this is the way you're supposed to build a computer. Um, you know, obviously in 8-bit we didn't really have those abilities, but um, so it was. I mean, I guess in some ways it was still my formative years as a as a computer engineer, but it was like, no, this is. It struck me as this is the right way to do things, and. To this day, still, they didn't make any mistakes. Now, what what if any work had Commodore been doing on a 16-bit architecture before the acquisition? <laughs> there was the Commodore 900. Commodore 900 was a was basically going to be a little baby Sun 2. It was running the coherent operating system, which was a Unix clone before the days of Linux. Um, they had both a megapixel display and a multi-terminal server, a little, a little um, serial port with a processor on it. Um, and that was, that was done by one team that couldn't get it to work. 
So it was kind of tabled for a little while. Then they brought in another team who couldn't get it to work. So they, and then finally, Bob Welland and George Robbins took over that project and made it work. And it was actually a very good design. It was, um, there was uh, this guy Rico Tudor did the graphics. He eventually worked, ended up working for B Incorporated. Um, he had his own windowing system. It was an X Windows. It was ridiculously fast. Fastest windowing system you will ever see. Because all he cared about was having windows to run Unix shells in. He you know, wasn't, wasn't trying to do anything really, um, you know, the kind of stuff that most people were doing with windowing systems. He just wanted everything to be ridiculously fast. So, so it, had, it ran Rico Windows. It was very simple user interface. It had used a mouse. And it was a good system. Um, I'm not sure Xilogs systems had a whole lot of future in them, but they had, they had already been used in um, many computers. Um, in fact, CBM VAX replaced our original CBM computer, which was a, um, which was a Z8000 based computer that um, George, George had bought like all of the computers when Exxon got out of the data systems division. They had, this, they had made a Z8000 Unix machine that they they got out of the business and he bought up like a whole truckload of of these systems that he was then putting into places and that was our first computer that accessed the internet at Commodore. Um, so that system, sadly, when when we bought Amiga, the company wasn't in really good health anyway, and they had decided that only one 16-bit system could go forward, and because. In a good part because they bought, they had spent all this money on Amiga, but also because Amiga being games capable was a lot closer to what Commodore was used to than selling something that was essentially a baby Sun 2. Now, from the beginning, Teletree, did the top brass at Commodore see the Amiga as a business slash productivity machine or another games machine in terms of an earner? It's hard to say with the top brass actually thought as going up to you know, to this Commodore International level. Um, at engineering level, um, we our, our boss, um, Henry Rubin, when he was our boss, made it a point to have the best Amiga on his desk at all times. So he was using spreadsheets, he was doing business guy stuff with it. But I mean, mostly I think there was, there was the impression with a lot of people that this was a creativity product, you know, that kind of create, it was a different kind of computer. It wasn't really going up against IBM PC. And, you know, you look at the launch, you know, Andy Warhol and Debbie Harry, you know, and that is the kind of, I mean, it really, that was the strength was you could do music, you could do video, you could do stuff that was really, really difficult to do on the IBM PC after Commodore. I actually started trying to do some music on the IBM PC back then. It helped to be a computer engineer because most of the time it failed. And um, in fact, I got a lot of free software. Well, I got a, a package from, uh, from um, uh, Sonic Foundry of free software that they had written, you know, I had acid in Vegas because I had successfully um, both helped and defended one of their guys on the PC dog group where everyone was sort of like trying to figure out how stuff worked. And I wrote this whole diatribe about how everything worked just basically to end the discussion. Mm -hmm. And this guy, Peter Haller, was like, 
oh, I, you know, you basically, you know, you basically saved my day. Here, have this software. I'm like, yes, okay, this is great. But it, you know, PC days. But um, yeah, it was clearly, um, and you know, and you know, you looked at. I wasn't even looking at applications at the time. I was a computer nerd, right? I was looking at like, look at all the stuff this does. So we started getting a little bit of Amiga stuff in the summer of '85. Um, they sent like one or two Lorraine boxes, which were the big black metal cases with the expansion chimney. They handed out a very, very small number of the green bound ROM kernel manuals. That was like all, all the Amiga books in one at that time. And you had to sign your name to get one. And Bill Hurd was able to get one. And the very day he got that, I stayed late and photocopied the thing. <laughs> so I, totally illegally, but I wanted to learn everything there was to know about this computer. And over the next week, I, I read the whole book. Um, and I actually, I felt a little bad because like that summer, the, the 128 came out. I was doing a regular, um, I was doing a regular show every month on Quantum Link with Fred Bowen answering C128 questions. And yet, my heart was starting to go somewhere else. Starting to drift. Um, when you, after the acquisition happened and you were officially working on the Amiga, what were some of the first things that you were assigned? Well, so after the C128, Bill Hurd left the company. I was there with Frank Pillay, and we were sort of trying to justify our existence. Um, we made two halves of a Commodore 256. I made one that supported 256K of RAM, and Frank made one that allowed the Z80 to run at full 4 megahertz, 4.02 megahertz, 4.04 megahertz, whatever. Anyway, um, and um, we, were we were trying to sell the company on, hey, remember us, we want a job. And after a while, there was just like, nobody was interested in, in making a, a new 8-bit computer, but um, George Robbins wanted some help on the uh, A500, and there was some thought among management, like local, not, not top-level brass, but like Jeff Porter and, and Henry, that I might be the guy to lead the A500 project, and they would give George the 2000, which they'd been working on in Germany, because but nobody wanted to use the A1000 parts to build the A2000, they wanted to use the A500 parts because they were going to cost less, and maybe we could integrate some more. Problem was, because George, of course, had done the C900. He was that guy, right? He was the high-end guy. I was the low-end, I was the, the senior most remaining low-end guy, because I was there you know, two years before, or a year and a half before Frank. And um, George said, no, this is my baby. You can't have it. So they gave me the 2000. Wow. <laughs> and it was like, holy shit. <laughs> But um, but I you know I so I you know so I, I you know it wasn't like I was in a vacuum. I was working with George. He was you know, he was basically a month ahead of me on the on the A five hundred. I was taking all the stuff he did on the A five hundred, figuring out what to do with that in terms of the A two thousand. We didn't need you know they had that extra slot in there that was essentially the edge connector from the one thousand that was going to be used for CPUs. We knew that. In fact, already. Bob Weller was working on a, on a 68,020 board to run, to run Unix. Those Unix guys just never gave up. <laughs> um, but, um, and actually a little bit before that, he was even building his own MMU cache chip. So it took a little while before we saw the 68,020 because that was kind of, a, that was kind of a, a second, you know, that was sort of plan B when it came to uh, 
um, building this new system. But anyway, um, so you know, I, I so I worked on the 500 for about a month. So like I said, small fingerprints, mm -hmm. um, enough to learn the whole system at a you know at hardware engineer level rather than just reading the books and stuff. Then I went on to the 2000. Um, because of this whole C this slot, I said, well, the CPU should be able to basically should be able to take over the slot. Um, which I started planning to put all of the PLDs that they were using to run the expansion bus into a, a separate chip. We called we ended up calling Buster. Um, unfortunately, I didn't catch the mistake the Germans had made in their PAL equations. So the first Buster ended up getting its own little tower because it had, there was one mistake in there in that when a Zora device masters the bus, the buffers from the main board are supposed to point the other way, and they weren't. So you, it, it, when you're talking to, like, so Zoro, like, a, you know, an 85, um, I don't know, a DMA card talking to, a, a, you know, an 8052 memory card or something. Um, Whatever, yeah. Um, yeah. The DMA across the bus was was getting interrupted by noise from the main bus, and it was just it was that was the one thing that failed because now the Germans once I found this problem, they said okay we'll just reprogram our pals. Wow, I had to go and re I had to go and rev the chip. <laughs> I felt bad about that because I just it was it was a lot to take on in a very short period of time, and that was one thing I didn't understand well enough to have found the problem initially. Once I saw it there on the bench, it was easy to find. Um, so, um, so you know, so I, I that's when I, that's what I launched into the 2000. When that was done, I joined Bob Welland in getting the uh, 2620 board done. Um, he left to go work for Apple about halfway through that, and ended up being like one of the main guys on the Newton. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, it just went on from there. Um, yeah. Well, I've been told that it's time that we wrap this up. Oh no! I know. I feel like I could talk to you for the rest of the night, but thank you so much. I can. For, yeah. <laughs> and uh, you might need to refill my beer at some point. Thank you, Jose. Okay. Does that shut it off? Maybe. Yeah, it's good. Good. I mean, there's something after me. Don't leave me to the end. I know. I know. <laughs> I didn't ask any of the ones I had written down. <laughs> okay, folks, if you stay with us for uh, just a minute, we're going to have Dan Wood and uh, David Pleasance, who are going to come to make an announcement about uh, some new developments in Friends. What we have. They'll be okay. Before you talking, less than five minutes. Okay, that's what's up, guys. Thanks.
We might sit down as well, actually. Yeah, yeah I think He's on the legs for 45 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yes, Ben. Yeah, Thunderbolt as well, yeah.